Okay, our scripture for this morning comes to us from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, we are taking the next few weeks to go through this letter that Paul wrote called the book of Galatians, and we're going to be just kind of plowing through that. There's a big theme that comes out of it that you're going to see, and it is the gospel plus nothing, the good news of Jesus plus nothing that you do equals your salvation. That's the big message that Paul is defending in this letter to these churches that he's planted. So let's pray. We'll get started. Father, I I thank you for today. I thank you as we read this letter just for the gift of salvation. Paul is telling his story, his testimony of how you broke into his life and saved him. And Lord, there are people in this room that maybe have had different experiences than Paul, but just the same, you have broken into our lives and you have radically changed us. You have given us a new heart. You have given us hope. You have given us life. And so we thank you for your goodness to us. I pray that no matter where anyone is in this room, that they would feel welcome to be on this journey with us. And Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would just begin to speak to all of us today, whether we are following you, followers of Christ, searching, seeking, wherever we may be, Lord, meet us where we are at. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I began working at a inner city camp. It was like a sports camp. It was right in the downtown area, inner city of Kansas City. And I was the only that I could see. There was a lot of people there. I was the only white guy in the room. And I came from kind of a middle to upper middle class, you know, uh, part of the suburbs both my parents married, loved Jesus, grew up in the church, and I, here I am just sort of transported into this inner city camp as a counselor, and I'm there with all these other counselors from the hood, and they do this thing that Christians often do where they say, hey, let's share our testimony. Let's talk about how God has saved us. And so they start going around the room, and it's some of the wildest, craziest stories I've ever heard. 
You know, one guy lifted up his leg. He was in a gang. He'd gotten shot. He had the scar to prove it. He was laying in the hospital bed, and somebody came in and just started reading the Bible to him, and all of a sudden, it was like lights just turned on. He began to follow Jesus. There was other people that talked about how they'd spent some time in juvie. Uh, they experienced abuse. I mean, just some of the craziest, most grand, awesome stories of the power of God moving in their lives. And then it gets to me in the circle. And I just internally panic. What do I do? What do I say? I have zero street cred in this room whatsoever. So I did what any good Christian kid would do. I completely made up my testimony. I lied about my story. So I said, well, and I tried to keep it as vague as I could because I didn't want a lot of questions asked. But I said, well, you know, I've, I've just kind of grown up on the west side, you know, might have thrown up one of these. And, um, and I said, and I, life's just been hard, man. It's just been hard. And God has miraculously saved me. I've gotten into a lot of trouble in my days, you know. And um, I think my voice got a little lower as I was telling it. And so I share this story, and everybody kind of just stops and looks at me, and, um, and then they do, like, the thing that was not what I wanted them to do. They begin to ask questions, like, fact check my testimony. So it was like, uh, you said you grew up west side? Like, what does that mean? I was like, it's like west of here in the suburbs, you know, just right over there in the Olathe. You know, and they were like, okay. They said, so what do you mean you got into trouble? And I just had to start telling the truth. Well, see, I'm homeschooled. And uh, sometimes I don't get all my homework done. And, you know, my parents are not happy with me. And, uh, you know, God's just been helping me. I don't get my chores done all the time. And it was like completely exposed. And they all just start laughing. And I realized in that moment, number one, it's probably not good to lie about your testimony and what God's done in your life. But number two, uh, the truth of your story and my story is the thing that brings the power of God out. It's the way in which people see how God has moved. My story is way different than that. I mean, I was self-righteous. I grew up in the church. I thought I had to earn salvation and God's approval of me. And I checked all the moral boxes that I was supposed to. I mean, and God came in and wrecked my world while I was doing prison ministry, checking that off the list, and showed me that I'm no different than any of these people here. Other than they've repented because I was in a chapel service. They've repented of their sins. I had to repent of my good motives of my good deeds with wrong motives. That's what I had to repent of. And so I'd share that story. I've shared it a number of times, and I've just seen people come to faith through it. I've seen people see in front of them the power of God, and they go, man, I've had that same story. So the truth about our story is what reveals God's work in our lives. So we're going to look at Paul's story today. He shared, this is Paul's big testimony Today, we're going to look at it, and I want you to consider your own story, and I want you to think about, as we're talking about it, the symptoms of grace that you've seen in your life. Maybe a better way to say it is evidences of God's grace in your own story as we look at Paul's story today. I think what it will do for us as we consider Paul's story and our stories is it will build our faith. 
Because when you look back on your life, and we're so busy, we don't take the time to just slow down and thank God and think about God and reflect on the ways in which God has always been with us, has always navigated us through trials, has not let us down in the midst of a lot of broken circumstances. So I think it will build your faith. And then I think for some of us, I mean, we might be sitting here thinking, that's what evidence of God's grace looks like in our life. I don't have any of that. I don't know if I know Jesus. I don't know if I actually believe this. I don't know if there's fruit in my life to show it. So reflecting on your story, reflecting on your testimony is not a waste of time. Don't let the shame keep you away from looking into it because I think the Lord wants to do something. Here's the evidences of God's grace that we see really clearly in Paul's life. We see revelation, and we'll talk about it, initiation and transformation. Boom, good pastor, good Baptist pastor, had all the shuns in there for all my points, okay? Revelation, initiation, transformation. Okay, so the first thing that we see in this story, that actually we don't see it. You, what you don't know is Paul is writing this letter to this church. It's actually a group of churches in Galatia. It's probably three or four churches. Paul is, by the way, a church planter. Yes, he starts new churches, and then he moves on, and he starts other new churches, and then he kind of oversees the churches. That's why he's writing all these letters, and he offers correction, encouragement, and he just tries to make sure that the message of Jesus stays true to what it is. This is one of the harshest letters that Paul writes to the church in Galatia. They've gotten way off track, but he is really kind of like what we're a part of. We're a part of a church network. We're part of Acts 29. We're also part of another network called SOMA. And it's a group of churches that um, share resources together. We're encouraged. There's leaders that help oversee it. It offers accountability and encouragement to us. So Paul, in a lot of ways, is doing what we're a part of uh, through our networks. He's overseeing this network of churches that he has started. And this church in particular is made up in Galatia. These different churches are made up of Jews and Gentiles, right? There's like Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And that usually doesn't go very well together. But this is where Jesus is sort of breaking the paradigm for everybody and saying, no, all are welcome into the kingdom of God. And Paul plants a church who is a Jew himself, who was like the goat of all Jewish students. He was the Tom Brady. He was the Michael Jordan of Jewish students. He says it right here. He tells us that in, let me see if I, I'm jumping ahead in my notes, but he says this, for I would have you know, brothers, Okay, nope, lost it. Hold on. Bear with me. I'm going to find it. Okay, here it is. Nope, it's not there. Here it is. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He was telling him, I was rising above everybody else in my class. I was the Jew of all Jews. People were looking to me and wondering if I was going to be the greatest Jew of all. He was zealous for his Jewish faith, so zealous that he was putting Christians to death. He was stoning them. He was separating families from each other. He was imprisoning people who claimed the name of Jesus, who would ever dare to mix Jews with Gentiles. He was like a terrorist, but he was praised for it. He was the goat of all Jewish students. And here he is 
planting churches now because God wrecked his world with it's full of Gentiles and Jews. And this is the message in which he wants everyone to know. It's called the gospel. The gospel, by the way, is just good news that is being declared. So you hear that a lot in church, gospel, gospel, gospel. Sometimes it's even kind of a cliche word that we say. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, and that is what Paul is saying cannot change. It's the story of a man who lived a perfectly moral, good motives, good intentions, good actions, good heart for 33 years. He lived this life that you and I were unable to live. He died a death that we deserved, but he stood in our place absorbing the very wrath of God that absolutely was deserved upon us. He took our place and died the death that we should have died, and he was buried in a tomb for three days, confirmed dead. He resurrected from the tomb on Easter Sunday, which is what we celebrated last Sunday. He walked around after his resurrection for 40 days on this earth with hundreds of eyewitnesses that got to touch his skin and put their finger in the spear hole that was in his side and touch his hands. And he ate fish with the disciples and people watched him and confirmed the same eyewitness account story that yes, this is the man we saw three days late earlier die on a cross. And here he is with a completely new body, alive, awake, conscious, and proclaiming good news. He ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit, part of our triune God, to be with us as he left, to minister to us, to reveal truth to us, and he promised that he would one day return. And that we as Christians as people that follow the way that we put our faith in that truth will also be resurrected from the grave one day in heaven with him for all eternity. And the message is to all who believe. It's to all who believe. Jews, Gentiles. Paul tells us later on in Galatians that there is no separation from Jews to the Greeks. There's no separation from male or female, from slave or free man. All are one in Jesus. Chosen people, the Jews through the Old Testament, Jesus comes and just opens it up. Opens it up for all who believe. This is the message that is being threatened in the book of Galatians. The Jews don't like what is happening, and so they begin to add fake news. Churches in Galatia have some guest preachers come in. Fake news is now added to this message. They begin to say, no, it's not just grace through faith alone. You don't just put your faith in Jesus and follow him. What you do is you actually have to follow the old covenant law now of being circumcised, which is a sign that you're truly one of God's. One of my favorite things that Paul says at one point is, you know, if, if you're going to circumcise yourself and they're going to continue to do that and say that you have to do that, I wish they would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. Just cut it off. That's not on the coffee mug verses at home, but it is one of my favorites. That is how adamant he is about the importance of keeping the gospel pure. And if you add just a little bit of it, you change the whole message. Snake's venom 
is 5 to 10% poison. Only 5 to 10% and the rest of it's protein. But it's just enough to be deadly. And it's the same message in which Paul is telling us is this is a message of life that leads to life, and now it's a message of death that is leading to death when you mix in anything else. They begin to question Paul's validity and his motives as a leader, and so Paul is now writing this letter defending his faith. He's defending the gospel, and he's defending his own reputation as a leader. And the reason that he's, and the way in which he's doing this is he's like, I'm just going to tell you my story. Here it is. And he just begins to break it down. And he says this, verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. It's not man's good news made up by them. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In seminary, they talk about two different revelations that we experience. There's general revelation, which is like right before the service started, I went outside, the sun was shining. It was like 70 degrees or 60 something. It was beautiful. I was like, let's have church out here. God's alive. This is great. Uh, That is God revealing to you that he's real. And everybody, according to Paul in Romans 1, is without excuse if you don't believe in God because he has put creation and he has put his fingerprint all over the world in which we live. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. General revelation. All of us know. We all know at some level. This wasn't an accident or an explosion. Then the second type of revelation is called divine revelation. This is the type of revelation in which Jesus, all Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've experienced divine revelation. Where Jesus breaks through into your world and he begins to reveal himself to you. We had a couple baptisms up here on last Sunday and I think it was Kevin that said, He was listening to a country song in his car, and something just entered into who he was, and this light came on, and truth, and he just began to want to follow Jesus. He began to want to pursue the Jesus that he had heard about from the time that he was young. It is not man's gospel. That affection as a Christian that you feel in your heart toward God, that was a gift given to you. That was not something that you read about and then you like got to that place. That is God's divine revelation working in you through the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. That type of grace that happens on our life leaves no room for pride. So if you see a Christian, and sometimes I'm guilty of this, that's prideful, which I know Christians and churches tend to hurt a lot of people, I think there's a lack of understanding this. Don't elevate yourself in self-righteousness because whatever came to you, came to you. You did not earn yourself. It was revealed to you out of God's ultimate wisdom. So humility should be a great mark of who we are as Christians, just for that reason alone of revelation. Second thing we see is initiation. 
God doesn't just reveal who he is. He actually is initiating that plan. He does do that, but he's initiating this plan of your salvation from the time that you were in the womb. Before you had a chance, God began working and mapping out your story in your life, which would eventually lead to this moment of him revealing himself to you. I'm not saying this to be controversial. I know churches get in fights about this thing all the time. What I'm doing is I'm just taking this text right now, and I'm going with it, okay? I'm taking this passage of Scripture, and we're going with it. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's verse 15 right there in 16. Set me apart before I was born. I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to just read to you what happened. This is God initiating in Paul's life the story of his conversion. He was Saul and he becomes Paul. But Saul, so Saul's on his way on the road to Damascus to go terrorize and kill more Christians. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, So that if he found any belonging to the way, which is following Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Eventually, he will be prayed for, and something like scales will fall off of his eyes, and he will begin to see, and he will become the greatest missionary in history. He will become a martyr. He will suffer for the name of Jesus. He will write more books in the New Testament than anyone else. But it was while he was breathing threats, it says in verse 1, Jesus shows up on the scene to the terrorists and reveals himself to him. Jesus initiated this move. In the book, Surprised by Joy, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about a professor that he has. And this professor's name is Kirkpatrick, which they called him the Great Knock. And he was an atheist, and his intention as a teacher, uh, he was a logician, and he was like a great debate teacher, very well known. And he trained C.S. Lewis on how to Uh, basically argue the case for atheism technique. And C.S. Lewis obviously became one of the great 20th century debaters that we know, Christian debaters. But little did the great knock, this Professor Kirkpatrick, know that God has put C.S. Lewis on this path 
where he would sit under his teaching, gain all of those skills. God would initiate salvation, reveal himself to C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis would then take those skills and use them for the advancement of God's kingdom and the good of God's glory. Pawns. Pawns on a chessboard. I mean, God is owning things. God is over things. God uses broken things to accomplish his purpose. You guys know the story of Joseph, right? Genesis 30 to Genesis 50. You have this story of this punk little brother who's going and telling his brothers how much better he is and, you know, that God's chosen him. They're going to bow down and fall, you know, at his feet at one point. They get upset and they basically try to have him killed throw him in a hole, then they end up selling him last minute. He goes into slavery into Egypt. He gets falsely accused moment after moment after moment. And then he gets out and he becomes second in command. And he saves a whole nation from famine. And his brothers end up coming back and realizing the guy that we tried to sell into slavery now is ruling over us. And his words, Joseph's words, are this. In Genesis 50, 12, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. God is initiating your salvation, and even after your salvation, he is still bringing you to him. We talked at our staff, I got permission, at our staff meeting we talked about um, just this idea of what it means that God is pursuing us, that he is initiating his good plan on our life. And Susie shared that she's had some experiences in churches that she has felt like she's excluded from groups. She has seen exclusion take place in churches. And her heart now is one that has been hurt and been wounded, but God has redeemed that, and he's begun to work it to where now she is passionate about first impressions. She wants people, everybody that comes in her door, she wants them to feel welcome. She wants them to know the love of God and feel welcome. God using that brokenness and a little bit of that suffering in order to produce and promote something good for his purposes. So where are you today? Like, what is going on right now in your life that feels like God has abandoned me, he's left me, other people have rejected me, whatever it might be. I mean, is this not a great comfort to know that God has mapped your life out and has you on a trajectory with a destination that is good, that is for your good? And I think sometimes in our lives we lose sight of this reality that God has not initiated, he's abandoned, he's, I'm on my own. But here's the truth of it. We respond to that with then control. We try to control everything around us and we find out quickly that that doesn't work. In our control, we get angry at other people because they don't do the things we want them to do. We get anxious. I mean, how many people are on anti-anxiety medicine right now? And I don't say that to condemn and I don't think that's a bad thing to be on medicine. But I'm just saying, is that not just a symptom of control oftentimes. The question that I want to get to, that I want all of us to get to, that I want to ask myself when in trial is this, 
what is my good God up to right now? What is my good God wanting to accomplish for my good right now in this broken state? What is it? I know it's something. That's settled. But what is it? It's hands that are open, not closed, to what God wants to teach us. And finally, what we see with Paul take place is transformation. And that's an understatement. Transformation. Paul begins to talk about the evidences of salvation, um, how he was radically transformed and how it took place. We see this, he says, he who used to persecute, I'm sorry, he, the church in Judea, he is quoting them. After Paul becomes a Christian, the church in Judea says, the guy that used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. The terrorist has become now a spiritual leader. Can you imagine, this is historical, right? Can you imagine being in a Bible study or showing up at a church and the guy that killed your husband or the guy that imprisoned your best friend for following Jesus is now the guy leading the Bible study. He's now the guy talking to you about hope and comfort and this good news of Jesus. That's radical stuff. Grace is offensive in many ways. We all need it, but it can be very offensive. There is not a clearer picture of the transformative power of God, I think, than in the life of Paul. He hated Christians, and then toward the end of his life, we see him carrying their burdens and weeping over it. He loves Christians. He gave his entire life to the good news of Jesus in these churches. Is there transformation in your life? Does your life look different from before you were a Christian to where you are now? Now that, those actions, that doesn't save you, but it is definitely fruit and evidence that you have been saved in your story. Your affections for God, have they increased? Do you desire to do good? Has your love for others grown? Like these are good questions to ask. I mean, we can look at the fruit of the Spirit. Paul offers this to us and says, love should be there and increased. Joy should be increasing. Peace should be increasing. Forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I mean, all of those things from before you knew Jesus to now after, they should be growing. You should see an advancement of those in your life. We go through hard seasons. I mean, you look at 2020 for me, and it felt like those went the opposite way, right, on that trajectory. But overall, is, are you growing in transformation to look more like Jesus? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus' words himself in Luke 6, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasures produce evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Oftentimes what comes out of our mouth is what was exactly what was in our heart. The 
I think probably for some of us, we might say, man, it's hard to see transformation in my life. If we're just honest in this room right now, it's hard to see it. I don't know if I've seen a lot of it. And then for others, in, in a humble way, because we know who's working in our life, we might be excited right now. We might be thankful and say, Lord, I'm encouraged. I, I look at my life and I do see change. Sometimes it feels like I'm barely moving, but looking at the big picture, like my timeline, I am pursuing holiness. I am looking a little bit more like Jesus. And that's an encouragement. That's the work of the Spirit in us. Our stories reveal God's work in our lives. Is God working in your life? Do you feel the Spirit of God? The invitation that was to Paul and to Saul, who is breathing threats, murderous threats, is the same invitation to you right now. It's okay to feel unsettled in your heart if you do, because it's that unsettling sometimes that pushes us to the good, to the truth. So I want to do something right now. I just want to reflect for a minute. I want to sit in silence, which we don't get a lot of in this day and age. I just want to sit in silence for a couple minutes, and I just want you to reflect on your story. How has God transformed you? How has God initiated his plan on your life that you can see? How has this played out in your life? And I just want to take a couple minutes in silence and do this. So let's just... We'll begin, it's a prayer, so we'll begin just in silence, and then I'll, I'll close this prayer. Father, I thank you that you are a God that offers hope even now. This is not a hopeless message. The good news of the gospel is one that is an invitation to all, even those who have walked with you for a while, to go to a deeper place with you. For those that don't know you, maybe breathing threats even against Christians, Lord, what a powerful picture that we see with Paul of what you can do in our lives of what sins you can overcome. You have a storehouse of mercy. You have leftover grace. And it's available to us. Lord, I just pray that we would be a church that would receive your grace right now. We would look at our stories and for those that are celebrating and saying, yes, God is good, just like Paul's final words were, he did this for the glorification of God so that people would know how good God is. Lord, I pray that right now people would look at their lives and they would feel encouraged, those that need to be encouraged, encouraged to the level to where they would want to go tell others about their faith, about what Jesus has done. Show the power of God through their story. And for those that maybe have questions, maybe even sitting in silence like that. It was so filled with shame that it was hard to even sit still. God, would you just, through the power of your spirit, just begin to call them in, begin to give them hope, give them this thing called the gospel and God's grace. Lord, we need you to do this work in our life. 
I thank you for the life of Paul, but more importantly, I thank you that Jesus came and did everything that we couldn't so we can rest in that work. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.